0: This HIV Review Special Edition podcast is presented by DKb Med Radio. Welcome to this HIV Review Special Edition podcast. We're here to focus on how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting people living with HIV and what their caregivers need to know to make the most appropriate treatment decisions. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the HIV Review, and I'm here today with Dr. Matthew Spinelli, Assistant Professor in the Division of HIV, ID, and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and San Francisco General Hospital. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and click on the COVID-19 Special Edition link. Dr. Spinelli, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Bob. Our overall learning objective is to evaluate emerging data to make treatment decisions for people living with HIV during the COVID-19 pandemic. So start us out with an overview perspective, if you would please, doctor. What are some of your chief concerns?
1: Well, to start, no previous epidemic on the scale of COVID-19 has overlapped with the HIV epidemic, and the intersection of these two epidemics could potentially lead to an unprecedented public health emergency. The massive public health response, the necessary public health response, has led to the closure of medical care in some contexts and also the interruption of medical care, fewer clinical visits, and the transition to telephone or video visits. There's a lot of concern that a decrease in disease monitoring as well as the impact on social services and the economy could impact access to care for people living with HIV and lead to worsening disease outcomes. And the ultimate concern is that we could have setbacks and progress towards reaching the goals of the ending the HIV epidemic and the UNAIDS-1990 initiatives.
0: This susceptibility for COVID-19 infection among people living with HIV, uh, what do we know about that? What does the evidence say? Well,
1: the evidence is still mixed, but it is growing. The majority of our data comes from Two large population based studies from Spain, which showed similar or lower COVID 19 incidence among people living with HIV. The SARS CoV 2 susceptibility among people with HIV does not appear to be disproportionately elevated, and other factors such as the social determinants of health, including housing, may be playing a larger role. In the U.S., people living with HIV have high rates of homelessness and unstable housing. So that could mean that people living with HIV in the U.S. could have a higher risk of COVID 19.
0: What about the impact of HIV on the severity of COVID-19 infection?
1: Well, we have quite a bit more data on that question, but still, I think we could use more The risk of severe COVID-19 outcomes was similar by HIV status in the VA VAX cohort, which is one of the largest cohorts of COVID-19 HIV co-infection reported from the U.S. to date. That's 253 individuals. However, in a cohort from the Western Cape province of South Africa, which included over 500,000 people living with HIV, there was a higher rate of death among people living with HIV. So it is possible that comorbidity burden within different populations rather than HIV status itself, could be a driver of COVID-19 disease severity. But I, I do think additional study is needed.
0: There's been a lot of interest, a speculation really, about whether our current antiretroviral regimens might have an effect on COVID. What can you tell us about that avenue of research?
1: Well, there was an initial hope that repurposing of antiretroviral regimens might have an impact on disease severity for COVID-19 among people living with HIV and potentially be repurposed for for people without HIV. However, two randomized controlled trials of lopinavir-ritonavir did not suggest a clinically significant effect, unfortunately. On the other hand, tenofovir has been shown to bind the SARS-CoV-2 polymerase in vitro, but clinical data has been mixed and clinical trial data is not available. In a large cohort in Madrid, Spain, tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate, but not tenofovir alafenamide, was associated with lower COVID-19 hospitalization. However, there were some issues with that analysis and that patients with renal disease might be more likely to have been switched to tenofovir alafenamide, leading to a channeling bias.
0: So your advice to clinicians...
1: Based on the available data, clinicians should not change antiretroviral regimens based on theoretical COVID-19 protection, nor should they be used for the clinical care of COVID-19 outside of a clinical trial.
0: The COVID-19 pandemic has caused considerable disruption in the healthcare system. How has that impacted HIV outcomes?
1: The impact of COVID-19 on HIV outcomes is quite clear. With growing alarm, we are seeing that the COVID-19 epidemic could compromise progress made in meeting the UNAIDS, 1990-90, and the U.S. ending the HIV epidemic goals. The data is coming in, but one study I'll highlight is a study of over 3,500 PrEP users from a large PrEP provider in Boston, and they saw a 72% decrease in PrEP initiations and an increase in refill lapses of 278% with an 18% decrease in overall PrEP users. And we're hearing similar findings from multiple settings.
0: And the impact on people living with HIV?
1: So the impact specifically on people living with HIV has been similarly quite stark. A large online survey of over 10,000 men who have sex with men across 20 countries, which included 1,000 people living with HIV, indicated that one-fifth have not been able to access their provider, and only 14% had access to telemedicine. While telemedicine can decongest clinics and permit physical distancing, this alone will not stem the impact of the epidemic. In particular, we're seeing increasing economic and housing insecurity, food insecurity, reduced access to social services. For instance, the Ward 86 Clinic in San Francisco, which is my clinic, we switched to a predominantly telemedicine model. And after doing so, we still saw 32% increased odds of unsuppressed viral load, despite the retention in care remaining quite stable. Innovative solutions likely will be needed to temper the impacts of COVID-19 among people living with HIV. While telemedicine should certainly be a part, I don't think it's sufficient alone. We'll need proactive outreach to offer housing, to address food insecurity, mental health and substance use concerns, and to offer additional resources for our patients.
0: Dr. Spinelli, thank you for bringing us this snapshot of the currently known evidence about the effects of COVID-19 on people living with HIV. As part of this eHIV Review Special Edition, you also spoke directly with frontline clinicians about what they're experiencing as they navigate a disrupted healthcare system. Tell us who you spoke with and why you chose them.
1: One clinician I reached out to was Dr. Annie Antar from the Department of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. We discussed the susceptibility of people living with HIV to COVID-19 and their possible risk factors. Dr. Antar. How have patients in your HIV clinic been impacted by COVID-19? Has any specific group been disproportionately impacted?
2: I practice in the Johns Hopkins Bartlett specialty practice, where we see about 3,000 people who are living with HIV. And so in the first four months of the pandemic, from March through the end of June, we had 31 patients that we know that tested positive for COVID-19. I followed the outcomes of those patients. We know that 10 of them were admitted to the hospital. Five were intubated. One patient unfortunately died, and two others had poor outcomes. So we know their average age was 53. The average body mass index was 33, so an obese category. And 90% of them had comorbidities besides HIV that are known to put them at risk for more severe COVID-19. Only three had CD4 counts that were less than 200 prior to the COVID-19 diagnosis, and of those, two actually required hospitalization.
1: I'm very sorry to hear how many of your patients required intubation. Have you noticed that CD4 count and HIV viral load, if they have any relationship with the risk of severe COVID-19 in your patients?
2: We collected the outcomes from our patients and sent it to a national registry that was headed by Duna Dandatsu at the University of Missouri. She actually came out with a publication last month, and it was specifically designed to address this linkage between CD4 count and viral load and COVID outcomes. So disclaimer, I'm a co-author because we contributed our data to this. So she found that patients who had CD4 counts less than 200 as compared to those with CD4 counts greater than 500 were more likely to be hospitalized and actually more likely to experience a severe outcome, which included ICU admission, ventilation, or death. So the caveat there is that it's unknown based on kind of the data recording measures when the CD4 count was obtained. So in some cases, that could have been during the COVID-19 diagnosis. And we're seeing lymphopenia um, when people have COVID-19. But I can tell you that the patients that we sent her, all of those CD4 counts were done before the COVID-19 diagnosis, before they were infected and exposed. She also found through her study, and this study included over 250 patients, that patients with an unsuccessful viral load were more likely to be in the hospitalized group of patients than those who didn't apply hospitalization. So it appears that it may be more likely that people who have very low CD4 counts, less than 200, may be more likely to end up hospitalized or to end up having a, a severe outcome. But I think you know it'll be great to get data on this from other bigger groups as well.
1: So we've heard quite a bit about the unfortunate impacts of the COVID-19 epidemic on people living with HIV. Can you tell us a little bit about how your clinic has responded?
2: So I have to give a lot of kudos to the leadership in our clinic. Dr. Joyce Jones, Dr. Yukon Manabe, really implemented kind of a suite of actions to promote best practices for HIV care during the pandemic. So I think some major things that worked were the heavy promotion of our in-clinic pharmacies, delivery of medications by mail to patients. And I think that worked very well on the whole. Most of my patients are getting the medications this way. A second thing that really worked well was that our clinic main phone line was updated and it gave patients, an option to get to a one line for rapid screening and testing for COVID-19. And then we included wraparound care. So if anyone recorded symptoms of COVID-19 and requested a test, we would make sure that they had a telemedicine follow-up to see how they were doing. And then another thing, this is getting to COVID care for HIV-positive people. Our clinic purchased and mailed pulse oximeters to patients who we thought had COVID, and that was a nice way for them to be able to monitor themselves at home and to decide when they needed to come to the emergency room. And of course, we paired that with telemedicine visits on a frequent basis for people who tested positive. One thing I'm proud of in our clinic is that we're continuing to offer rapid HIV treatment initiation and re-engagement in care for our patients. We have a dedicated nurse, and so... She is scheduled a telemedicine visit within a day for any ambulatory patient that's new to our practice. And if the patient's not on ART, then she's going to make sure that they're scheduled with an HIV provider within three business days with a goal for seeing a provider within one business day. And then other things that we've been doing, we've been utilizing home-based HIV testing through IWantheKit.org. In terms of what we're doing for the future, part of funding that Dr. Joyce Jones in our clinic has received, we're going to be offering patients who are newly re-engaging in care or engaging for the first time in HIV care smartphones with data as needed to help use telemedicine.
1: Wow, that's an incredible amount of work you guys have done to respond to this epidemic. I think some major takeaways for me are that having some sort of a system where patients can re-engage in care rapidly. We know that a lot of our patients are experiencing socioeconomic impacts in the epidemic and may stop their meds. And so having that space for them is so important. Thanks so much for sharing these interventions. I'm very
0: grateful for you taking the time to speak with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: You also spoke with Dr. Michael Peluso, one of your colleagues at UCSF.
1: Dr. Mike Peluso is in our division of HIV, infectious diseases, and global medicine, and he's the clinical lead of an interesting study, the long-term impact of infection with novel coronavirus, or the Link study. I want to get his input on what is known about persistent COVID-19 symptoms and as well the immune response to COVID nineteen among people living with HIV. Dr. Peluso, can you tell us about what we know so far about the immune
3: response to COVID-19 among people living with HIV? So there are many important questions about the immune response to SARS-CoV-2 in people with HIV, such as whether humoral or cell-mediated immunity is protective and whether those are durable in people with HIV infection compared to the general population without HIV. This could really have major implications for the ongoing pandemic, and it would also inform what we are trying to achieve in response to a vaccine. For example, we know that people with HIV experience more rapid waning of antibody titers to other vaccines like yellow fever or hepatitis B, and that this is often related to things like overall immune health, including inflammation and the CD4 to CD8 T-cell ratio. This could also be true of SARS-CoV-2 immunity. And similarly, T-cell exhaustion and the limited regenerative capacity of T-cells And people with HIV might affect cell mediated immunity to SARS CoV 2. That's fascinating, Dr. Peluso. Let's turn it to the clinic. Do we think that people living with
1: HIV have a greater propensity to severe COVID 19 disease? Why or why not?
3: The first thing that's really critical to understand is that people living with HIV are certainly at risk for severe COVID 19. Fortunately, it appears that, at least in some settings like the United States, people with HIV tend to be at similar risk of severe COVID-19 compared to people without HIV. There have been a lot of small reports that suggest this and several larger studies in which these similarities tend to hold up. However, there are some early reports from non-U.S. settings that suggest that people with HIV could be at higher risk for severe disease in those settings, and that really is going to warrant a lot of further investigation. For example, there's some early data out of a study from South Africa that suggests that people with HIV are at risk of worse outcomes in that setting. There are lots of different factors and confounding variables that could cause that to be the case. And that's really an area that will be important for further investigation. I think another major gap is that very little is known about COVID 19 in people with HIV who are not on antiretroviral therapy. And this has really important implications for people who may struggle to access or to adhere to their HIV medications. It also has really important implications for HIV research studies in which ART is paused. These are typically studies related to things like HIV cure, and many studies in that field require treatment interruption. So it's important to understand what the effect of COVID-19 could be in people who have HIV but are off of medications. That's a really interesting point, Dr. Paluso. I wanted to turn now to talk a
1: little bit about your study, the long-term impact of infection with novel coronavirus, which you guys call the Link study. And there you're following a lot of people who are recovering from COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit about people who have persistent COVID-19 symptoms? Do we know how
3: frequently this occurs and, and what are people experiencing? So the Link study at UCSF enrolls individuals who've had PCR-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. People enter the study within the first month of their illness, typically, as they're beginning to recover, and then they're followed monthly for a few months, and then about every four months for about two years. We're following about 175 people so far, including a significant fraction who are also living with HIV infection. What we began to see about a month after our study opened in the spring of this year was that a significant proportion of people were coming back for a second or third study visit, having technically recovered from their COVID illness, but were reporting persistent symptoms that were ongoing at that point for weeks or even months. So if you think back to the spring of 2020, COVID was initially being framed as a 10 to 14-day illness, and we were surprised that when we started seeing people in follow-up in May, a good proportion of our original study participants began reporting ongoing or recurrent issues. These symptoms are quite variable. They include issues with memory, concentration, and cognition, cardiovascular symptoms like chest pain or heart palpitations pulmonary issues like shortness of breath, GI issues like intermittent diarrhea or persistent nausea, and other symptoms like fatigue, body aches, and neuropathy. There also appear to be significant issues related to mental health and well-being. Some people have just one persistent symptom. Others have a constellation of symptoms. And I think it's really remarkable how much variability there is. We know that in the acute phase of COVID, there's a lot of variability where people could be asymptomatic or critically ill and anywhere on that spectrum. I think that what we've come to understand and link and what has been seen in similar studies throughout the U.S. and around the world is that there's also tremendous variability on the recovery end. And so some people have a very prompt recovery and are totally back to 100%. Whereas other people have a prolonged recovery or even recurrence of their symptoms that can really impact their quality of life. We don't yet know how common it is for people to experience symptoms like these, but even if they're rare, there have been so many cases of COVID in the US and around the world that there would still be a really large number of patients in whom we would expect these issues.
1: That's fascinating, Dr. Poulosso, and I know that if if anyone is in the Bay Area and would like to refer a patient, you'd be interested to hear from them. Thanks so much, and
3: we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.
0: You spoke with Dr. Chloe Teo from the Infectious Disease Center for Viral Hepatitis at Johns Hopkins Medicine about an interesting case she was managing.
1: That case illustrated the important clinical considerations in caring for people living with HIV who are also experiencing COVID-19. Very nice to speak with you today. I'm particularly intrigued by a case of your patient who was living with HIV and then experienced COVID-19 and developed an opportunistic infection somewhat surprisingly. Can you tell me a little bit about this case?
4: Sure. It was an interesting case. So this is a 60-year-old gentleman with a multi-drug-resistant HIV who was on antiretroviral therapy, suppressed with an HIV RNA less than 20. His last 84 count in 2017 was 617, 26%. He also had treated hepatitis C, chronic hepatitis C, and hypertension. And in mid-March, he told me with a fever to 101, dry cough, and progressed to kind of an achy feeling all over with fatigue. He did tell me at the time that about three days prior to his symptoms, he had traveled to a conference where he hugged people and was around a lot of other people. At that point, I had told him to see what happens over the next day or two, and then he called me back and said that he had developed some thrush. I did prescribe my sentence, which is to swallow, and sent him in for a SARS-CoV-2 test. It did come back positive, and at the time that it came back positive, which was several days later, he did also uh, develop some severe back pain. In the end, it took about 14 days from the time he started his symptoms for his fever to resolve. And I did see him back in clinic about four months after his initial symptoms, and his cd 4 count at that point had not come back up to normal. It was 536 and
1: 20.6%. Well, that's a fascinating case. I think many of us are worried about the transient lymphopenia with COVID-19 and how that will infect our patients. What lessons from this case do you think that clinicians should take who are treating people living with HIV who are recovering from COVID-19 And should we consider risk for opportunistic infection somewhat differently in this case?
4: Yeah, so I think that's an interesting question. As you mentioned, we do know that COVID-19 decreases lymphocytes, including CD4 T cells. So I think that one of the lessons from this case is that even though this gentleman had a very high, relatively high CD4 count, as I mentioned, with 617, prior to his infection with COVID-19, he still developed thrush. So I think even in someone with a high CD4 count, you still need to even watch for OIs. Because it was COVID-19, it was very early in the epidemic. He obviously didn't come in to get any blood drawn. So we don't know exactly how low his CD4 count went. It would have been interesting to find out. But I think the other lesson to learn is that it can take a while for the CD4 count to come back. So it's not just in the immediate period that you need to look for or be aware that OIs might develop. It may take several weeks for the CD4 count to return. As I mentioned, even four months later, his CD4 hadn't returned to baseline. I think the other important lesson to learn is that, as with all patients with COVID-19, they have to be watched very closely because they can get worse pretty quickly. He never had to be hospitalized, but I was talking to him almost every day asking him about his shortness of breath uh, symptoms. And I think the other thing important to realize is that we know now from studies that HIV does not really increase the risk for getting COVID-19. You know, he obviously had risk factors from traveling and hugging people. And so I still think it's the same emphasis to our patients is to wear a mask and social distance and that if they do that, just because they have HIV doesn't increase their chances of getting COVID-19. And it doesn't seem like HIV increases the risk for severe COVID-19 either.
1: Well, I think this is a fascinating case with important lessons, how we think diagnostically when HIV and COVID-19 interact. I just want to turn right now to think a little bit about how efforts to eliminate HIV, hepatitis B and C, and their epidemics will be impacted by COVID-19. How should clinicians respond and become involved in the response?
4: I think there are a couple of things. We know from data that there are fewer people who are actually getting tested for HIV and hepatitis C and hepatitis B. So I think it's important to test people if they have risk factors for one of these infections. We also know that there have been fewer ART starts because people are afraid to come in to see a doctor because of the risk of getting COVID-19 and more people have been missing clinic visits. So I think it's important for doctors to get the message out there that, you know, it is safe to go to the doctor. You know, doctor's offices are following CDC guidelines in terms of making sure there's ample time between patients and doing the cleaning that's recommended by the CDC. So I think that with these protective measures in place, it is safe to go to the doctor's office. And so patients should feel comfortable going and not feel like they're going to get COVID-19 from going to the doctor. I think the risk of not starting your ART or missing a clinic visit or not going to the pharmacy to pick up your medications is a greater risk than there is for getting COVID-19.
1: Well, I think these are incredibly important points and a good thing for us to end on in this podcast. Thanks so much, Dr.
4: You're welcome. Enjoyed speaking with you.
0: Let's turn now to your conversation with Dr. Jessica Bloom. She's from the UCSF Department of Medicine, and she's also the clinical lead for the San Francisco Department of Health COVID-19 Case Investigation and Contact Tracing Research Branch.
1: Dr. Bloom provided an overview of the impact of COVID-19 on HIV prevention and treatment services, and we also discussed how lessons from the HIV epidemic are being used to confront the COVID-19 epidemic. Dr. Bloom, can you tell me a little bit about your work providing services to people who are recovering from COVID-19 in recovery hotels?
5: Sure. I was primarily involved in setting up the medical services, and it was a very hectic time, but it was really a privilege to work with others who also came from an HIV services background. We truly were able to develop models of patient-centered care and harm reduction, and I feel that was very much grounded in the experience of established HIV care models. For instance, We incorporated medical substance use treatment into services being offered to individuals staying at the hotels from the very beginning, because we wanted to ensure we could address any factors that would keep people from being able to isolate safely.
1: Dr. Bloom, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how people living with HIV with housing instability have been impacted. Have they had trouble engaging with care or filling their antiretrovirals? Have other aspects of their health been impacted?
5: It's been a very challenging time for people who are unhoused and unstably housed. In our clinic, we're at 86 at San Francisco General. It looks like our urologic suppression rates have gone way down for this population. And I think that's due to a number of factors. I have personally heard from my patients that they can't find a place to shower, syringe service programs, have more limited hours, and it's very difficult to find a shelter bed these days. And that takes a huge physical but also a psychological tool. And we also know that mortality rates are rising for unhoused people, so it's really a a real impact. And for people living with HIV, it's understandable that medication adherence falls down on that hierarchy of needs um, when basic needs are not being met. And then in addition to that, telehealth visits are not often meeting the needs of unhoused patients. People may run out of money for credit on their phones or they don't have phones to begin with, so we're not always reaching them with telehealth visits. On the converse side, patients who are part of our clinic's drop-in program, there hasn't really been a decline in the number of visits, which to me indicates a preference for in-person services. And I suspect that part of this is because someone has people feel that the clinic is a safe space for them, and it's important to continue to offer that safe space, even if we have to adjust the physical space and the PPE we're using to follow COVID-19 precautions.
1: So, Dr. Bloom, how have HIV treatment and prevention services been impacted by COVID-19? How has HIV influenced the ambitious disease intervention and contract tracing program that you have now implemented in your health department?
5: So, HIV prevention services have been hit very hard in San Francisco. We know that community testing rates are down 90%, and that's largely because the Department of Health And our community partners have reduced our in-person services, and many staff have been deployed to the COVID-19 response. But on the flip side, we're seeing the influence of HIV treatment and prevention workforce at every level in the COVID response. We know the HIV workforce has deep experience in educating the public about a stigmatized disease and working with vulnerable populations and in developing and implementing a harm reduction approach. So we've been able to harness that. In the Department of Health in the COVID nineteen response, and in particular in the case investigation and contact tracing program where I've been involved, and I can share one exciting area is our program to connect community based organizations in COVID nineteen contact tracing and wraparound services. So in the HIV prevention world, we've had long standing relationships with community based organizations in HIV testing, and we've been able to leverage that to develop training programs for community based organizations that have a really great knowledge and understanding of populations they work with, whether it's the LGBT community, Latinx day laborers, or African-American community. We're developing training around contact tracing and support services for people affected by COVID-19 and having them adapt these services to meet the needs of their populations in a sustainable way. So my hope is really that these new partnerships can be leveraged to bring us back to getting HIV testing out into the community getting people linked to PrEP and other HIV prevention services, because we do need to get back to doing that along with COVID-19 response outreach.
1: Dr. Bloom, thanks so much for telling us about the important programs you've implemented to respond to COVID-19. It sounds like there are many lessons from the HIV epidemic that we can use to address COVID-19. Thanks so much for participating in our program.
5: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: And for one more look at the real-world effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on people living with HIV, you turn to Elizabeth Lynch, an MSN and an RN from the University of California, San Francisco's Positive Health Program. Lizzie Lynch is a
1: nurse at the Ward 86 Clinic at San Francisco General Hospital, which is also my clinic we discussed important considerations in caring for people living with HIV during the COVID-19 epidemic, such as the impact on obtaining social services. She also suggested a model for care to support our patients during this time. I'm here speaking with Lizzie Lynch, who is the Positive Health Access to Services and Treatment Program, or FAST, nurse at the University of California, San Francisco's Positive Health Program. Thanks so much for joining us, Lizzie.
6: Thanks so much for the opportunity. Tell us a little bit about
1: your work as part of the Positive Health Access to Services and Treatment Program or FAST Program. What are some of the goals of the program?
6: Well, the main goal of FAST is to help get patients connected to care by supporting them and engaging with them in working with the healthcare system and all of its complexities by lowering the threshold of access to services. We are an interdisciplinary team. We have two social workers I'm the RN, and we have a MD, and we have a, a weekly medical clinic, and then we also have weekly case conferences and panel management meetings about our cohort of patients.
1: How has the fast program been impacted by COVID-19?
6: Much like everybody, we've been really significantly impacted. Many of our patients are experiencing homelessness or unstably housed, and basically 100% of our patients are either on Medicare. Medicaid or a combination of the two. And all of these systems have been significantly impacted by COVID. Throughout the city, there's been a decrease in access to supportive services and a significant increase in barriers to those services. For example, case management and intensive case management services, drop in sites, drop in day programs, shelter navigation centers. There's been a decrease in staff and access for patients. And then a reduction of other city funded services like public transportation. DMV offices are being closed and then decreasing access for patients who don't have access to computers or other online programs or online services. And then there's just been a decrease therefore in the therapeutic relationship of human connection because of the lack of staff and then COVID testing is now required for entering facilities and residential treatment programs, which is important, but that also means that this increases the complexity of referrals and the care coordination needs and the length of time on waiting lists. HIV testing also very notably was cut in half for the first three or four months of COVID across the city just because we're all thinking about and you know focusing on COVID and that has really significant downstream impacts on our patients.
1: Thanks so much for walking through that. I I think the decrease in HIV testing in particular and all the reduction in these services, quite scary.
6: Yeah, absolutely. It really is.
1: Sounds like a lot of new challenges during this difficult time and certainly a lot of concern about how people living with HIV will be impacted by the epidemic. I did want to focus in particular about people living with HIV who've actually recovered from COVID-19. How do you think living with HIV impacted their response to experiencing COVID-19?
6: It's interesting. There's so much fear and there's so much like almost like a PTSD response to another viral pandemic and the stigma that goes with having a viral illness that's new and has so many unknowns and is really greatly feared. So for our patients that now have both experienced being positive for COVID and are living with HIV, it's like a familiar fear that has come back up. And there's a lot that goes into that. In kind of like a silver lining almost kind of way though, for our patients that we have linked and are really engaged in their HIV care and know their care teams, the patients that are at risk for have gotten COVID, they were already connected to a primary care provider, knew how to get in touch with their care team or access emergency services and testing. And so there was that kind of positive element to that as well. But yeah, just a lot of anxiety and confusion surrounding transmission risk. And then also I think, that has impacted me the most thinking about this is that there's been a lot of COVID-adjacent morbidity and mortality that has spiked and has been very scary for patients. And so they're thinking like, if I'm not going to die from COVID or I'm not going to die from HIV... But there's all of these people dying now because they are alone in their hotel room or they're isolated. They have less access to healthcare services. And so there has definitely been an increase in morbidity and mortality of our patients, but not because of COVID, but of how COVID is impacting our systems.
1: Well, it sounds like a very complex situation. Certainly a lot of fear about COVID itself, but also everything that comes with the response to COVID, the isolation and the decrease in services. I did want to ask you about, given your experience interacting with people living with HIV who are recovering from COVID or being impacted by the epidemic, are there some lessons for clinicians who are treating people living with HIV about how they can respond?
6: The model of FAST has been to provide quick, supportive wraparound care and so how we respond very quickly to patients, for example, that are newly diagnosed with HIV. And I think, you know, triaging testing or, you know, COVID testing in the same way and responding immediately with psychosocial support, medical attention, and then the navigation of systems and resources for individuals, which is really kind of the bread and butter of FAST. I think that's a very simple lesson to parlay into COVID. I think it aligns really well. And then also just really thinking about skilled disclosure of COVID positive tests. You only get to tell somebody that they're positive with HIV once, and maybe that's not the case with COVID, but really thinking about The way that you approach telling somebody that they're COVID positive, providing mental health support with rapid linkage to medical care and supportive follow-up, providing these wraparound services with an interdisciplinary team with frequent and swift follow-up, really having this be relationship-based care. And then also with the FAST team, we've really seen the importance before COVID of engaging people over text and by phone. And then that's just become like a very big part of COVID now. And then also, I think that there's some really good lessons in utilizing someone's experience with COVID and interacting with COVID as a fulcrum to pivot into the healthcare system for ongoing primary care and for those not previously engaged. And so becoming positive for COVID is an opportunity to develop those relationships and and help teach people about how to engage in care and primary care
1: so many important points and lessons that I think people can take away, particularly because we're seeing so many of our patients needing additional services right now, whether it's food insecurity or mental health support or substance use support. Thanks so much for participating with us here in the eHIV review program, Lizzie.
6: Oh my gosh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: Thank you, Dr. Spinelli, for adding this real-world perspective to expand on your review of the published data. Let's wrap things up now by returning to our overall learning objective, which is to evaluate emerging data to make treatment decisions for people living with HIV during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Spinelli, if you would please summarize our current state of knowledge.
1: Well, as we've discussed, the COVID-19 epidemic is threatening worldwide gains in response to the HIV epidemic. Incidence of COVID-19 infection does not appear to be markedly elevated among people living with HIV at least in population based studies outside the United States however there are high levels of comorbidities among people living with HIV including in the US and this may increase the propensity to severe COVID-19 disease Given the potential for our patients to destabilize with pre-existing mental health conditions or new mental health conditions, substance use disorders, or other comorbidities, providers should ensure that viral load monitoring is continuing on schedule for people living with HIV and that their patients are retained in care. In particular, providers should offer telemedicine-based care while ensuring that access to social support services continues as we attempt to temper the deleterious effects of
0: these intersecting epidemics. Dr. Matthew Spinelli from the University of California, San Francisco and San Francisco General Hospital, thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise in this EHIV Review Special Edition podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk about this important topic. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take this post test at ehiv.dkbmed.com. This EHIV Review Special Edition is supported by an educational grant from Merck & Company, Incorporated. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review Special Edition is copyright with all rights reserved by DKP Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.